We're continuing in our new sermon series today called A Beautiful Mess, and we're walking through the book of Genesis. Uh, The Genesis story is the story of our beginnings, and so actually the word Genesis means beginning. And so we're talking about our beginning, uh, not only talking about creation and, and the beginnings of life and the family, but also our own our own personal beginnings with our own families too. So that's the lens with which we're reading Genesis. Now you may remember if you were here last week that we talked about the first family and we talked about the fall of Adam and Eve and how this brought shame into the world for the very first time. And uh, Pastor Bob talked about shame in an interesting way. He talked about, he talked about like a lockbox and he said, it's like in every family we have stuff we put out to display and show everyone our pictures and our diplomas. But then he said, then there's this lockbox and, and there's some things in here that we don't like to show others and that we're more ashamed of and that are very difficult to talk about because they're either embarrassing or humiliating or uh, we just simply don't like to even look at it. And so we put it in here and we kind of lock it away and we don't really like to bring it out into the light. And I'd like to talk about one particular thing in the lockbox uh, that a lot of us have experience with in our families. And so I'm going to pull this word out of the lockbox today. Uh, This is the word anger. And uh, a lot of us have experience with anger, particularly in our families. Angry uh, families can leave uh, children wounded. I remember when I was a kid, I was in a uh, head-on collision. And so uh, as a result of that car crash, it broke a few ribs and then punctured a lung. And so what they did in the hospital for a couple weeks was put a chest tube in me and uh, attempt to de- de- you know, de- reinflate the lung and drain the fluid and stuff like that. And uh, to this day, I still have a mark, really sizable scar on the left side of my body because of that chest tube, because, because physical wounds leave physical scars. Uh, but the deepest wounds of a person's life are not physical, are they? Uh, the deepest wounds of a person's life are often more emotional or those sort of spiritual wounds. And so anger can leave a person very, very wounded. Uh, In fact, let me just ask you, when you think about the worst memories of your family growing up, you probably think about anger, don't you? When you think about the worst things you can remember about your family, you probably think about anger. When When you think about your very worst memories, I bet they have something to do with anger. I was certainly true for me. I brought a picture today of, of the family that I grew up in, and, and it, it's over here. You can see, I'll put it up on the screen too. You can see I'm on the left there, uh, kind of short in this picture. Th- that changed over the years. My older brother, Rob, on the left. My older sister, Beth, on the right. Uh, then we have my mom and my stepfather, and then my little sister, Kristen. And so that's kind of the family that I grew up in. And what I remember from, from this family picture was, although we're smiling there, um, Really, there was a lot of anger going on. Really, there was a lot of fighting uh, behind the scenes in my family. Uh, Most of my growing up years. Uh, There was so much anger that eventually uh, there was a restraining order. And at that point, my stepfather left and, and never came back. And it was finally over. And I actually remember feeling not just grief, but a little relief, if I'm honest. Because as a little guy, you're that's just scary. Uh, that kind of anger is, is really painful. And so for a long time, I didn't really even know what to do with all those feelings. And that was my first experience with anger. And boy, it left me wounded. And I had to learn how to deal with those wounds from anger. And maybe some of you can relate to that. Uh, maybe some of you were around a lot of anger. And you know how destructive it is. 
And so as we begin the message today, let me just invite you uh, to remember where you had your first experience with anger. Uh, Who was allowed to be angry in your home? And how did that anger affect you? I want to look at a passage in the scriptures that deals with this exact issue in in Genesis chapter 4. The title of the message is simply, The Mess Made by Anger. Uh, Genesis chapter 4 is is probably the most disturbing chapter in the whole Bible. Uh, If you have read this and you're not disturbed by it, you probably don't understand this chapter. Uh, And so what we're going to see is three components here. We're going to see the problem with anger. We're going to see the cause of anger. And then we're going to see the healing of anger. Uh, The problem with anger, the cause of anger, and then the healing of anger. That's where we're headed. Uh, Before we open the word, why don't we pray together? Oh, Heavenly Father, we bow our heads now and we close our eyes. We thank you for the good work that you're doing here in our church and in Senegal. Please continue uh, to have your hand upon our mission. Uh, But today, as we approach your word, we do so with open hearts, asking for eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand. Give us insight and maybe even give us healing from those places in our lives that have been touched by anger. Would you do your work, Lord? We invite you here, Holy Spirit, to to do your healing work, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 begins with these words. It says, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Here's the first two humans ever born. Uh, Remember, Adam and Eve were fashioned already as full-grown adults. So Cain and Abel are the first two human beings to have the complete human experience. And so Eve gives birth to Cain, and, and his name just simply means birthed, which I think is a little funny. You know, what's your name? Birthed, okay? And then his, his brother's name is Abel, which means vapor or fleeting. Uh, you, you might remember this word. It comes up a lot in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's this idea of, of vanity. It's this idea of... Uh, There's this ominous foreshadow already with this guy's life in his name. And so let's move on to see what it says. It says, now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. I want you to notice that Cain and Abel here are not just siblings, but they are very, very different siblings. One's a herdsman, the other's an agriculturalist. How many of you today have siblings that you grew up with? Yeah, just a lot of us. All right, good. You can put your hands down. Siblings can be a big blessing or not. Uh, See, siblings can be like both extremes. They can be our best friends in life, but they can also be our worst enemies, right? Nobody can quite fight with us quite like our our siblings can, right? And and here, what I want you to see is that these two guys are different. And isn't that what makes family, and more specifically relationships with siblings, so challenging? If everybody in my family was just like me, I could deal with them very, very easily, if only my siblings were like me, then I could get along fine. But, but we were born into a family, and nobody's exactly like us. Even if there's somebody in your family with a similar personality, still it's a little bit different. If you've had a brother or a sister, you, you know they're not exactly like you, and what's different can oftentimes drive you nuts. I always think, well, can't they be more like me? Can't they, can't they be more thoughtful like me? Can't they be more conscientious like, like me? Can't they be more considerate like me? then we could get along, right? That's the way I think. 
But that's not how our God works. In, in the scriptures, oneness is never based on sameness. What God does is he takes, he takes two totally different things and then he makes them one. Uh, but if we don't cooperate with him, then, then things really don't go so well. Here's a picture of me and my siblings uh, in my growing up years. You can see my sister Beth's leg warmers, which are just fantastic, aren't they? And my brother and my little sister looks like she's looking up at me there uh, endearingly as I am wearing my favorite shirt at five years old, which was the Incredible Hulk shirt. Before Marvel came up with Endgame, oh, I was diehard. I was the uh, Incredible Hulk fanatic. I had the shirt. I had this bike that was the Incredible Hulk bike. I, I loved just the strength of the Incredible Hulk. Now, if you know about the Incredible Hulk, you know he had a problem with what? Anger. When Hulk got angry, man, you didn't want to be around. That anger could make a mess. And isn't that so true? Anger can make a mess. Anger can make a big mess. Was anyone in your family making a mess with their anger? Let's go back to the Genesis story. Here's Cain and Abel. They're very different. Then it says this in verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. I want you to notice a few things here. First, I want you to notice that God passes over Cain, who is the firstborn, which culturally speaking, that, that was, there was something called primogeniture, so the firstborn always got the special treatment, but You'll see throughout the book of Genesis that that's not actually how our God is working. Usually it's actually the younger gets, gets preference over the older in the book of Genesis. The second thing I want you to notice here is that, that they, both, they both bring an offering. They're both pursuing God. They both bring something related to their career and related to their income. But one is accepted and one is rejected. And we've got to ask, well, you know, what's the difference here? Because it's not that clear. You have to look really carefully to see what the problem was. And I want you to notice the language. Notice that it says Abel brought the fat portions and the first fruits. Do you see those words? Those words are missing when the description of Cain's offering is there, aren't they? In other words, Abel gave off the top, whereas Cain did not. And, and this is what we're told in the law to do later, to bring God our first fruits and to do this takes a lot of faith, right? Because you're trusting God to continue to provide if you give him what's first. That's why Hebrews chapter 11 says it this way, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. Uh, one of my seminary professors, Dr. Curavilla, said it this way, one engages in acceptable heartfelt worship. The other merely conducts an unacceptable tokenism. Yeah. That's what's going on. But there's another really important reason why one sacrifice was accepted and the other one was not. And the reason is because Abel brought a blood sacrifice. Uh, you may remember in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, but that was not a sufficient covering for them. Instead, God gave them a blood sacrifice instead. Instead, God covered them with animal skins. Now, how did he get those animal skins? An animal was sacrificed, that's how. And then they're covered. And you see the same thing. If you search the scriptures, this is always how God 
works. This is what happens with Moses as, as he instructs the children of Israel to slaughter a lamb and put the blood all over the doorposts, and then God will pass over them. This is what we see later in the temple system where for the Day of Atonement, they have to offer a blood sacrifice. And, and although Cain worked really hard for his, God has always said throughout the whole Bible, you can never work hard enough to earn your relationship with God. Instead, God says, if you want to come to me, the way to come to me is a blood sacrifice. It is a substitutionary atonement. That is what I require. And so God rejects Cain's offering. As a result, it says this, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. The word angry here in the Hebrew is chataf. It means to be hot or to blaze or to glow. And he's not just a little angry. He's very angry. He's fuming mad. Uh, now, that's what anger is. Uh, anger is an intense, explosive emotion. It's a, it's a shot of adrenaline that makes me aroused and energized to act quickly and decisively. Because when you're angry, uh, you feel that in your physiological body, right? You feel your heart start going faster, and, and you feel your, your, you know, your breath starts to be more rapid, and you feel kind of, you start to feel a little warmer in your whole uh, physical body. It's like this fight or flight thing going on, and it has the potential to be very destructive. This is like the Incredible Hulk, right? The Hulk smash. Now, maybe it's not that extreme, but... How many of you, in a moment of honesty, would say, uh, you know, I, I've been there. How many of you, in a moment of honesty, would just admit that you had a moment in your life where you were so angry that it took you to this really bad place, and then after you calmed down, you felt pretty foolish about the things that you said or did? How many of you would just be honest and say that today? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Those of you not raising your hands, we're a little worried about your <laughs> truth-telling ability, but that's okay. You know why you felt foolish? It's because you were foolish. You see, Proverbs chapter 14 says this. It says, a quick-tempered man displays folly. See, anger clouds my judgment. It distorts my perspective, and it, it makes me behave irrationally. That's why it becomes so destructive. Now, let me just say this as a caveat. Not all anger is wrong, okay? I understand that. In fact, the Bible never tells us that you should never be angry. It, does, it never says that. Actually, having no anger is not, not a good thing. Why? Because there's some things in this world you should be angry about, right? There are times when even our God is angry. And he's perfect, okay? So anger can't always be wrong. This is why the scriptures say, be angry, but sin not. Be angry, but do not sin. And so there's this healthy expression of anger, and, and, and I'll put this on a chart. The purpose of anger is, is really to protect and to defend. And, and the natural expression shows up with an assertiveness and saying, no, thank you. See, see what anger actually is, it, it's a function of love in its purest form. Anger is love in motion, moving to neutralize a threat to that which I love. Does that make sense? See, that's the purpose of anger. If you see a thing or a person that you love being threatened, and you don't feel angry, well, then you must not love that thing or person very much, right? See, this is why John Chrysostom, one of the church fathers, said, he that is angry without cause sins, but he who is not angry when there is a cause sins. Now, there's these distortions of anger, though, that I think most of, our, most of us are more familiar with. And so uh, let me put some of those on the screen. There's, there's kind of blow anger that 
ends up with rage and abuse and revenge and violence. And, and that's not good. Uh, but another distortion of anger is no anger. Uh, no anger is when I suppress it, when I, you know, a lot of people just kind of stuff it down and they walk around like with a low-grade fever all the time ready to blow. That's no anger. That's, that's not good. And so according to the Bible, it's not that I should have no anger, and, but it's not that I should have blow anger, it's that I should have slow anger, like God. You see, when the Lord describes himself, he describes himself as slow to anger, and, and we, being made in his image, are made to reflect him. But so often we don't. So, so often, instead, I reflect these distortions. And that leads us to movement two, the cause of anger. See, if, if I really want to know how to manage my anger, then i got to get underneath of it, because anger oftentimes is a secondary emotion, and there's something underneath of that anger I need to look at, some really deep stuff. And here's where God begins to work on his child, Cain. Notice verse 6. Uh, then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? Why, are you, why is your face downcast? Why? And the reason is this. There's really two purposes with which we can bring an offering to God. Uh, one is for God, and then one is for myself. There's really only two reasons. And that heart motivation inside of me really makes all the difference in the world. Uh, one way to give is out of gratitude because of all God is and all he has done for me. That's love, that's worship, that's an offering. But the other way is I give to earn something back from God. I, I give transactionally. I give because I want to play my cards right and I, I want to give to get and it's like a manipulation and ultimately it's not a trust in God, it's a trust in myself. And when it doesn't work out, I'm angry. Now that's self-righteousness. And that could be the, the cause of a lot of people's anger. You know, have you ever met any really angry Christians? Have you ever met an angry nun? Have you ever heard of a you know, really angry preacher? Well, what is that about? Oftentimes, the reason why they're so angry is because deep down, they, they think they've been working so hard for God, and they made these sacrifices, and they've devoted their life, and they've given, they've tithed, and they stayed married even though they didn't want to, and they, they, they don't like seeing somebody else get what what they think they deserve, and they're angry, they're self-righteous, and they're full of pride, and they're not like Jesus at all. That's why Cain is angry. There's a self-righteousness here. Now, maybe he's angry at God for not accepting his offering, or maybe he's angry at himself for not giving the right kind of offering. But notice, he projects his anger onto his brother. Now, how many of you in your family, you were the recipient of projected anger? It really wasn't about you. You knew they were upset about something else, but you were the target because you were a loved one, and oftentimes loved ones are easy targets, aren't they? So what I want us to do here is just ask this question that God asks Cain and all of us. Why, why am I so angry? Because that question really gets to the root of my soul. Most of the time, I tend to think the anger in me comes from the outside. But the reality is, the anger comes from what's inside. Anger comes from within. My anger comes from within. And so I got to ask myself, why am I so angry? And that's what God in his grace asks Cain. Why are you so angry, Cain? In verse 7, he goes on, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, that verse 7, is, is, there's so much here, so just look carefully. I want you to see that 
This is the first time in the whole Bible the word sin is used. In Hebrew, it's the word chatath. It's used 522 times in the Old Testament. It literally means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. Now, secondly, I just want you to notice that Cain hasn't physically done anything wrong yet with, with Abel, but yet God knows where this anger is leading him, and so he warns him that what he's doing right now is not right. It's not what he will do in the future is not going to be right. It's what he's doing right now, stewing in his anger, which is not right. See, the Lord Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you remember in Matthew 5, he said, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You see, scholars have pointed out a strong emphasis here in, in the Genesis text on personal responsibility. That The Hebrew literally reads emphatically like, you, you, you must rule over it, Cain. This is our responsibility. Uh, one of my mentor is one of the wisest people I ever met, used to say, Dave, if it bugs you, it's your problem. And I hated when he said that. <laughs> so I'm like, what do you mean it's my problem? Of course it's not my problem, it's their problem. That's why I'm upset. If it was my problem, I wouldn't be upset. It's the... No, Dave, if it bugs you, it's your problem. See, I'm the one getting so upset, and nobody can make me get upset without my permission. See, if you have sinful anger, the scriptures teach that that's a sign that something's off in your relationship with God, and often the reason I'm so angry is directly, result, direct, directly related to some idol in my heart, and the anger is like the smoke, which leads down to the, the fire of this, this idol that's being threatened that I don't want to give up. And so I got to look at that. See, remember earlier I connected anger and love, right? But what if I love the wrong things? What if my love's all distorted? What if I love myself? What if I love my ego? What if I love my reputation and I can't stand how you critique me? Then my love gets all messed up and that's when my anger also gets out of whack. You see that? Sin is crouching at my door. It's, it's like a crouching tiger or a hidden dragon. The language here is, is like a leopard or a tiger, some predatory animal. Crouching in the shadows, coiled, ready to strike. Sin has a deadly life of its own. See, this is what the rooms of AA know so well. They understand that sin itself has power. That's why step one is all about admitting my powerlessness. Sin is not just behavior. Sin takes this shape. It wants to take me out. It wants to enslave me. That's why God says you must rule over this, this thing wants to master you. You must rule over it. And so that's the warning. And let me just phrase the warning this way. This is what God says. Anger, if unchecked, leads to devastation. Anger, if unchecked, leads to devastation. See, this is why that lockbox is important in this series. Because if I keep all that stuff hidden inside of there, unchecked, then I'm not going to really ever look at it, and I'm definitely not going to deal with it. Now, if this is true... The implication here is that I must become aware of those sins that lurk crouching right, on the, right alongside of my heart. I must bring them into my life because the most deadly things in my life are the things that I'm not even aware of or won't admit or rationalize, right? Those are the sins that are crouching. If I don't even see them there at the door, I'm not even going to realize the capability they have to devastate my life, right? I got to look. Tim Keller gives a couple helpful examples about this specifics. He says, as long as you look at your workaholism as conscientiousness, 
As long as you look at your holding your grudge as righteous indignation, as long as you look at your materialism as ambition, as long as you look at your arrogance as healthy self-esteem, as long as you look at your obsession with your looks as just good grooming, you're in denial. And more importantly, you're vulnerable. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. It's been said that sin always wants to do three things. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin is always crouching at our doors. And God graciously comes to Cain and to all of us and says, take a look at that. Tragically, though, in this story, we know Cain does not heed this warning, does he? Instead, Cain turns his back, shows an unteachable spirit, and next we read about the tragedy. Verse 8. Now, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. Why? Because nobody's out there and nobody's going to hear the screams and there's going to be no witnesses. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. This is one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. It's the first murder. It's a fratricide. And I know this is gruesome, but can you just imagine this scene with us for just a moment here? How blinded by his anger did he have to become to kill his own brother? And, and what was this like for Adam and Eve, the parents? How do you parents feel when someone hurts your children? I don't like it one bit. One of their sons is dead. The other son is a murderer. And what was this moment like for God? It is no wonder that in a few short chapters, the, the scriptures in Genesis will say, and the Lord God was grieved that he made mankind on the earth. As we see this picture of God with tears streaming down his face. And it's not just the murder that's the problem, right, in God's eyes. God sees the anger. First John chapter 3 says, anyone who's angry with his brother is a murderer. It's that same spirit that is in our hearts and and it grieves, it grieves God to see one of his children treated in, in that way. And so God here enters the scene. And it says in verse 9, that Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother, Abel? Now again, as we saw earlier in chapter 3, when God asks questions, it's not because he lacks information. When God said, Where are you in chapter 3? The answer was, spiritually dead. When God asks, where is your brother here? The answer is physically dead. Now, I want you to look at Cain's answer. He says, where, where's your brother? And Cain says, I don't know. You don't know? Am I my brother's keeper? Dr. Curvilla says, Cain replies with a brazen lie and an impudent non sequitur that throws God's question back in his face. He's avoiding responsibility. He's even blaming God. I'm not his keeper. You are, God. That's your job, isn't it? Not my job. Can you see the defiance? Can you see the defensiveness? Does anybody in your family, whenever they're confronted with their stuff, react with this level of defiance and defensiveness? It's very dysfunctional. Here God comes and confronts Cain and Cain talks back to God. Was I supposed to keep tabs on that guy? 
You see, just one chapter later, after the fall, between chapter 3 and chapter 4, sin has already hardened itself, and humanity is showing this unrepentant, defiant spirit. This is what we call the way of Cain. When someone commits something evil, and they won't even admit it, and they put up walls, and they just defend themselves, and they won't ever come clean. And the only solution a parent has with this kind of attitude is tough love. And that's what God brings. 10, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. There's the consequence. And how does Cain respond to God's discipline? It says, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Uh, Today you're driving me from this land and I will be hidden from your presence and I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Now please don't misunderstand Cain's words to be words of godly sorrow or contrition or repentance. They're not. His sorrow is just as self-centered as the sin he committed. Notice what he says. He's not saying, oh, what it cost you, oh Lord. Oh, what it cost my brother, oh Lord. Oh, what it cost my parents, oh Lord. No, he's saying, oh, what it cost me, oh Lord. It's self-pity. He's still focused on himself. He's sulking. He's still angry. He's still envious. No remorse. And the hypocrisy here, that, oh, you're worried about being murdered, Cain? That bothers you all of a sudden? You're concerned about murder? Self-centeredness, narcissism. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said humanity is curved in on itself. That's what sin is. That's what our flesh does. Uh, we live our lives from birth to death with that one question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? What's in it for me? Which means... Everything we do is self-seeking. It's it's always with this one agenda. I'm at the center. And as long as that's the case, we will never be who God calls us to be, especially when we're so full of anger. That's the way of Cain. And at the very root, here's the problem. Anger is a failure to love. Anger is a failure to love. Cain only thinks of himself. That's the way of Cain. When we're like that, we will never represent God well. I'll tell you a story about a guy who struggled with this. His name was Leonardo da Vinci. When he was painting The Last Supper, you may or may not know that he, he was in an intense, bitter argument with a fellow painter. And he was so enraged that he decided to paint the face of his enemy into the face of Judas. That way, the one he hated would be preserved for ages in the face of the one who betrayed Jesus. And when he finished Judas's face, people saw that. He was so easily recognized. and Everybody knew that's the one he's quarreling with, and it was the talk of the town. So Leonardo continues to work on this this painting. and, And as much as he tried, though, he said, I couldn't bring myself to paint the face of Jesus. Something was holding him back, and he decided it was his anger toward his fellow painter that was the problem. 
And so he worked through that hatred by repainting Judas with another face. And only then was he able to go back and paint Jesus' face on this masterpiece that we all enjoy. Friends, just like that, we as Christians are called to paint the face of Jesus to those around us. And we simply cannot do that when we hold that anger and that bitterness inside. But here's the good news. Here's the message of Genesis, and here's the message of the whole Bible. When we give our mess to God, it doesn't repel his love. Our mess does not repel God's redemptive love. It attracts God's redemptive love. God is a God who actually walks toward the mess, and God actually continually pursues the human race and even astonishingly offers grace here. Look at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, not not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now here we see the mercy of God. Even still, God is giving Cain every opportunity he can to repent. And God put this mark on him to protect him. And the story goes on, and we don't have time to to say it all, but Cain goes off and builds this city, and it becomes this whole culture of self-centeredness and anger and and revenge. And and the readers in the book of Genesis are are thinking, ah, all hope is lost. This is a huge mess. How can a problem this big be solved? How in the world can there be healing from that kind of anger? That's the third movement today. You see, if you're a parent and your child has a lot of anger, the only way to heal the anger in your child, your only weapon, is love. You have to separate out the behavior of the child from the child, and you have to pour in your love unconditionally into that child. And you as the parent, even if their anger is being directed at you, you have to find a way to absorb their anger. And that's the only thing God can do. Do you remember the curse that fell on Cain? Three things. Number one, I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Number two, uh, whoever finds me will kill me. Number three, I'll be hidden from God's presence. That's the curse. Now think about it. This is what our amazing God did. He's going to take that curse and he's going to absorb it unto himself. Who was the ultimate restless wanderer on the earth? Jesus said foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Whoever finds me will kill me. You know, Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and what happened? They came and they found him, and they killed him. I'll be driven away from the presence of God. There is no one who knows what it's like to be cut off from the presence of our Heavenly Father, like our Lord Jesus himself, who said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the gospel, at the cross, our God did what a loving parent can do. He absorbed all that anger into himself until he cried out, it is finished. And the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 12 makes a profound point about this. He says, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And the reason why it's a better word is because Abel's blood cried out for justice. Abel's blood cried out, the murderer must be condemned. The soul that sins must die. The sinner must be punished. That's justice. But the writer to the Hebrews 
is saying that Jesus' blood, which has been shed for you, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, because although Abel's blood cried out for justice, Jesus' blood does not cry out for justice. Jesus' blood cries out, show them mercy. Forgive them. Jesus' blood cries out for grace to those who will place their trust in him and his sacrificial work on their behalf. That's the better word. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And when we understand that grace, our anger can be healed. Our anger can dissolve and melt into the fire of God's love. And God's love is the most powerful force in the universe. And when you understand his love, your anger can melt away because the reason is this. If you're angry about something somebody else did to you, the cross tells me that God takes those things very seriously and he'll take care of justice on my behalf. And if I'm feeling guilty and angry at the things that I do, the cross tells me that all of that has been absorbed in his love too. And at the end of the day, this is the medicine. This is the healing balm for my anger. Our God is a God of love and healing and restoration. We even get a glimpse of that here. At the very end of chapter four, it says this, and Adam made life love to his wife again, and, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, which means the substitute. God has granted me another child in place of Abel. And Seth also had a son, and at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Through the line of Seth, a substitute would come, and he would clean up the mess. And so this story actually doesn't finish with despair. It finishes with great hope, doesn't it? There's a new line. There's a new line of believers in God, and we're going to create a new society, and we're not going to be so concerned with ourselves. Instead, what we're going to be concerned with is the name of the Lord. That's good news. Let me invite the worship team for one more song. And as they do, let me just say this. Just like God wanted to restore this family with Seth and and with this story of healing, I believe God wants to restore our families too. Because that's the heart of God. And I know it doesn't always work out perfectly, but I know it is true for me. Though things did not work out well with my family of origin and, and all that anger I had with my stepfather was difficult, I have found a place of healing in my life when I realized who my real father is. That is the healing bomb. And not only that, he's given me a second chance to have a family in life. And that's the family I have now. And I can't tell you how grateful I am for God's healing, restoring work in my life. Besides my own salvation, these are the greatest gifts God has ever given me. Our God is a God of restoration. That's the heart of God. He takes that which is a total mess and he is able somehow through the fire of his love, and I don't even know if we'd know how powerful his love was if we didn't have that mess that would dissolve in the pot of his love. Somehow he can take the mess and he can dissolve it and he can make something beautiful in your life and in mine. Amen? Can we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your restoring, redeeming, overflowing love. We come to you today with a spirit of thanksgiving for the hope at the end of this story through the hope of the gospel. And, and we believe that you alone have the power to heal. 
You have the power to heal our anger and our hurts. And we pray, God, that you would give us the strength to take the steps to accept your grace and to begin again. And we ask, God, that you would be able to do your restoring work in our lives and in our families, we pray, God. We thank you for this unbelievable invitation that you've given us to be adopted into the family of God and to be gathered around at your table. And as we approach the table today, give us grateful, thankful hearts and remind us of your unfailing love. For Christ's sake, for his reputation, we pray. Amen.